God, who can know the kind of love that would send an only loved son to come and die for sinners? To come and suffer for people who don't deserve it. And yet that is the truth that you proclaim through your word. That is the truth that we hold on to, the sure faith, the hope, the trust that we have in Jesus Christ. Speak that truth to us today. Silence all of the other competing voices that cloud our minds and help us to know you and to know the power of your salvation. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The numbers can be pretty staggering. A five-year study by the Barna Group found that 60%, 60% of Christians from the ages of 18 to 29 leave the church at some point, some of them permanently and the rest of that 60% for an extended period of time. A similar study by the group Lifeway found that 70% of Protestants aged 18 to 30 who used to go to church regularly in high school, 70% of them by the time they're 23 will quit attending church, one-third of them never to return. So the evidence is clear that a significant majority of students who grow up in church, who grow up in youth group, are going to stop coming to church. And many will not come back. These are pretty alarming statistics, especially when we put the faces of our own children on those numbers. But I don't want to share those alarming numbers to be alarmist. I think there's actually a hidden opportunity for the church that's underneath those numbers. I mean, behind these numbers is an impulse that has the the potential to transform the church into a powerful agent for God's kingdom. If we're going to understand what I mean here, we have to know a little bit more about that 60 to 70 percent who's leaving. I mean, it's one thing to just say these people are outside the church, but we need to understand kind of why they're outside of their church. Who who are these these young adults? The the saddest part of this research is that. A little over 10% of these people who grew up in the church no longer identify as Christians. They have lost their faith. They identified as Christians uh, in high school, but since leaving, they have lost their faith. But by God's grace, that's a relatively small number compared to 60 or 70%. The largest portion of young Christians, 40%, the largest portion could be considered nomads. They're they're simply wandering away from the church. They still consider themselves Christians, but they've just sort of lost a sense of the church being their home, the institutional church being their home. Another 20% could be identified as exiles, people who feel lost between church culture and, and what institutional church looks like and the mission they feel that God is calling them to. They want to change the world, but they're not really sure how the church in its Sunday morning form is part of that plan. And then there is the 30% of us who never leave the church. We are still here and we grew up in church. The temptation for those of us who find ourselves here in a church pew on a Sunday morning is to sort of 
pat ourselves on the back and say, well, I'm here. That's, that's good. I'm, I'm part of the group that's at least in a church building on a Sunday morning. And, and the temptation for those of us who are older Christians is to sort of talk about the good old days, the way things used to be. And when we think about the, the younger Christians, we think, you know, what's, what's the matter with these kids? I mean, why can't they just stay in church and, and be good Christians like they're supposed to? Why can't they just do what they're supposed to do? We feel a little bit betrayed. We feel a little bit hurt. And we simply have a hard time understanding what's so difficult about just coming to church on Sunday morning. What's so difficult about being part of the church? I want us to see that those who leave the church have something very important to teach us about faith and about God. A dismissive attitude like, you know, just what's wrong with those kids that... That's not going to, it's going to short circuit an opportunity to actually learn and grow together as a, as a body of Christians to, to really move forward in the mission that God has given us. Okay, so I've been saying that young Christians are leaving the church in droves. And we're in the book of Romans together. We're going through a long series that we started in January 1st, and, and now we're in chapter 4, and Paul's going to talk about Abraham. He's going to teach us a lesson about faith from Abraham. So what on earth does Abraham have to teach us about people who leave the church? I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Uh, we have pew Bibles in the little pew racks in front of you there. If you're using those, this is found on page 1115. I, I invite you to turn there, if you would, and have that open while we go forward. As we hear Abraham's story, his story is going to reshape how we think about those who are outside the church and it's going to reshape how we think about those who are inside the church. First, we have to hear how God saved Abraham. Paul has been arguing throughout here that God declares sinful people to be righteous by his grace when they believed. That means that the gospel, the good news that the Christian church proclaims is not about sort of doing good things and earning favor before God. No, instead, it's Trusting God, believing God, taking him at his word, and being counted righteous then through Jesus Christ because of that. In other words, you aren't saved by what you do. You are saved by believing God. Now, to build this argument, Paul has just quoted uh, David from the Old Testament. David has said that those who have received God's forgiveness are blessed those who have been forgiven, in other words, they haven't earned it because they needed to be forgiven, those people are blessed. But that brings up an important question, and that's where Paul's going next. Look at verse 9 with me. So Romans chapter 4, verse 9. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? Uh, on the face of it, this might not look like that important of a question, but it's really vital because the question is basically, who can be saved? And more specifically, do you have to be Jewish to be saved? Do you have to be a cultural Jew, a cultural, faithful, religious Jew in order to be saved? Now, in the context that Paul is writing in, a Jewish person would say, yes, the answer is yes. Yes, you do have to be circumcised to be saved because to be saved, you have to be part of God's people. To be part of God's people, you have to be Jewish. You have to have circumcision. I mean, circumcision was the single most important identifying mark for what it meant to be in God's people. 
So to receive the blessing of God's forgiveness, the blessing of God's righteousness, yes, you do have to be circumcised. You have to be part of God's people, the Jews. But Abraham puts a wrench in this way of thinking. Look at the rest of that verse, second half of verse 9 and verse 10. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. So Abraham received the blessing of God's righteousness, the blessing of God's forgiveness, before he had any ritual identifier, before he was a good religious Jew. And that means that no ritual, no religious identifier, even a central thing like circumcision for the Jewish people, nothing like that is a requirement to receive God's gift of grace. That means that justification, this, uh, this proclamation that we are right with God, that we are saved by God, that proclamation that Paul has been talking about, that doesn't rest on any religious identifier. It doesn't rest on any ritual. That rests on faith alone. No religious ritual, no religious identifier, however central to our thinking, can be the requirement for salvation. And the story of Abraham reminds us of a rather shocking truth about him. As Karl Barth reminds us, from the standpoint of the history of religion, Abraham is a pagan and not a Jew. God saved Abraham when he was a pagan, before he had become sort of the good father of the faith that he was. Abraham was a pagan, and God saved him. Now, I, I'm not advocating the use of the term pagan here. I understand that's kind of a, a nasty term. Um, but, but I'm using that to make a specific point here. It's a nasty term because this is what Paul is saying. You don't have to be a sort of a good person or the right kind of person to be saved. You can be a pagan with all the negative connotations that are wrapped up in that word when you are saved. God saved Abraham when he was sort of a nasty pagan. He saved him because he believed him. He trusted him. Abraham hadn't first sort of adopted the right, the right religious attitude toward God. He simply believed God. And now Paul's going to draw out the implication of that. Skip down halfway through verse 11. We'll come back to the, the first half of it, but for now, the second half of verse 11. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. So Abraham, the father of the Jews, the father of those who are circumcised, Abraham is actually the father of the uncircumcised people who believe, the people who are outside of God's people, his identified people, the Jews. Abraham's the father of the pagans who believe. And the pagans, these nasty people, receive just what Abraham received. God credits them righteous because they believe him. God justifies them by faith. This is completely an act of God's grace. Abraham is the father of the non-religious people who are saved by God. And that truth then must reshape how we think about those who are outside of sort of the walls of a church building. The truth is that God saves those who are not religious. 
And more specifically, he saves those who are not religious despite their lack of religion without requiring them to become culturally religious people. That last part's vitally important. He saves them without requiring them to become culturally religious people. When I was in college, I learned very quickly that each academic discipline has its own specialized language. So I began studying theology my freshman year, and I was lost so often in class discussions because they're using these words that even words that I think I know, they're using them in these, these specialized ways, and I think I'm lost. I'm just lost the whole time. So even a word like situatedness, I know where that comes from. That comes from the word situation. I know what a situation is. But situatedness is connected to this whole philosophical understanding of context and how that pervades our thinking. And, and so you, you hear a word like situatedness and you think, I, I have no idea even what the root of that means. And a word like particularity, I, I know what the word particular means, but, but particularity as it's used in theological circles talks to a, a truth about Jesus that, that really flows through the whole scope of theology much further than just the word particular would have led you to believe. And so as you're sitting there as a, as a freshman or as a sophomore early on in these classes, sometimes you feel like these people are just using specialized languages so that you will feel like an outsider. They're saying, you are not one of us yet. You've got to sort of make it through, and then one day you'll be in. Until you learn to understand the way language is used, you are an outsider. You are unable to enter the conversation. And, of course, academic fields aren't the only thing that have this. If you are unfamiliar with cars and you go to a mechanic, and they're going to throw around a lot of terms that you're not going to understand. They're going to say things like, you know, distri distributors, distributors, I can't even say it now, distributors and, and CV joints and gaskets and all these things. And, and you're like, well, I know the word broken, and I know the word fixed, and I know what a dollar amount is. I mean, don't, don't tell me these things. Uh, one, one hint there, if they use the word flux capacitor, they're trying to fleece you. If they say, that's, that's not a car part. But it's about making insiders and outsiders. Once you learn the right way of speaking and acting and talking, you're an insider. And, of course, the same thing happens in church. If you've grown up in a church, all the things that we do that are sort of churchy things make sense to you. You hear the two words small group together, and that puts a particular picture in your mind. You've probably been in a small group. It means, you know, six to 12 people who get together and read the Bible together and pray together and share their life stories together, things like that. A small group has a particular meaning in your mind. You know when you come to church, you're supposed to stand up sometimes and sit down sometimes. You're supposed to, you know, fill out the little registration pad and pass that along and, and find out who's worshiping with you. You're supposed to, you know, greet people after the service and these things. If someone is sharing a, a particularly difficult situation in their life, you know that if you say, I'll pray for you, that's sort of you're out of the conversation, and hopefully you do pray for them, but it's at least one way out. You know that if you're praying in public, the words just and Lord are two words that need to make pretty frequent appearance there. You need to say things like, Lord, we just praise you for who you are, Lord, and we just want to give you all the thanks. Now, I, I want to be clear. I, I'm making fun of myself here. I'm not, this isn't saying church is bad. <laughs> um, this is just church culture. It's not a bad thing. Every group of uh, people that gathers together will develop some sort of culture. A culture just speaks to the, the norms, the, the patterns of language and behavior that, that mark who you are. 
You are a group of people. This is your culture. The problem is when we equate being a Christian with church culture. That five-year Barna study, 22% of these young Christians agreed with this statement. Church is like a country club, only for insiders. We must fight that. And of course, we know that God saves non-religious people, and, and we want God to save non-religious people. We, we want those who aren't Christians to, to come into our gathering to receive God's grace. We don't really want everyone to look like us. We don't really think everyone needs to know the right words and say the same things. But we must root that out of our hearts. That divide between insiders and outsiders. Those categories have to be broken down completely so that we can actually love other people. We know that God loves people who are in the church. God loves people who don't look religious. God puts no cultural or ritualistic barriers in the way of our salvation. Remember Abraham. He saved Abraham when Abraham looked nothing like a good, righteous Jew. No circumcision, no rituals, only faith. And the same thing is true for us. This is a message for everyone, not having to do with church culture or saying the right things. It's only faith. That is the heart of our message. It is for everyone, and it's not based on any culture. It's based on faith. I was talking to a church plant pastor not long ago, and he was telling me on Sunday mornings before the service they'd have a little uh, gathering of people in the parking lot who were smoking cigarettes. And so you'd sort of see a cloud of cigarette smoke over on the corner of their church property. And he was so excited about this because these people didn't know that it wasn't an acceptable part of church culture to smoke cigarettes. They just knew that you needed to trust Jesus. They just, needed, they just knew that you were supposed to follow Jesus. And it's right, isn't it? The message of God's righteousness is for everyone. It's not tied to any of the baggage that sort of accumulate around a church as we spend time together. It's not tied to any of the baggage of Christian culture. You are justified by faith. No ritual is going to save you, and no ritual is going to keep you from being saved. It's about putting your faith in God. God saves you by faith. And if you didn't grow up in the church, but you have found yourself here this morning, I'm so glad. And this is good news for you, because it means that you're not spending your whole life trying to play catch-up to the lifelong Christians. You don't need to look like a Christian, whatever on earth that even means, to receive God's salvation. God saves people when they put their faith and hope in God. Not when they start looking and talking like other Christians. And for those of us who did grow up in the church, this totally reshapes how we think about sharing the gospel with others. This is no longer about us and them. This is now saying that we are all equal before God. We all need the same thing. Being comfortable with church culture gives you no advantage before God. Instead, you need to recognize that we are all one in need of God's grace. We together 
are going in the same direction. Faith is the only thing that we need. We need to hear the same thing that those supposed outsiders need to hear. That God loves us so much that He sent His Son to come and die for us so that we might have life by believing in Him. So, so far, Abraham's story teaches us that God saves the non-religious. Sinners are made righteous alongside of Abraham when they put their faith in God. Abraham's story also will reshape how we think about those who are inside the church. Paul says that God saved Abraham as a pagan, but the story continues. Look now at verse 11, the first half there. And he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. In other words, Abraham was declared righteous by faith and then he was given the ritual of circumcision as a confirmation, an affirmation of the faith that he already had. Paul draws out the implication of this in verse 12. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Abraham was counted righteous by faith, and then he was given this as a sign. That means that he became the father of the Jews. God took him as a sort of nasty pagan and made him the father of his people. That means that Abraham is not only the father of the uncircumcised who believe, but he's also the father of the circumcised, the religious people who believe. Note again that the central thing is faith. Belief here is primary and always is primary. Paul is not saying here that those who are ritually, religiously identified as Jews, in other words, those who are circumcised, he's not saying all who are circumcised are Abraham's true children, although that would have been standard Jewish theology of the day. Paul is saying that Abraham's true children are those who believe, whether or not they have circumcision. Abraham's true children are those who believe. That means that faith, again, is the central thing. Faith is the central thing. The religious identifier is the derivative of that. Circumcision is a derivative of faith that points back to it. That means religion, all the trappings of religion that, are, that come out of faith, are only, they only make sense in light of faith. So Paul's words here give rituals and religious identifiers their proper place because it puts them in the context of faith. So on the one hand, he's saying no ritual or no identifier is going to save you or keep you from being saved. Remember, Abraham was counted righteous before he had any of these. And on the other hand, he's saying that biblical rituals like circumcision can testify to important truths. Abraham was given circumcision as a testifier, an affirmation of the faith he already had. Faith is the central truth. Faith is the thing, the only thing by which we are saved. But rituals can testify to the centrality of faith. So rituals and religious identifiers, these kind of things that happen in a church, those only make sense in the context of faith, in the context of believing God. And this also then reshapes how we think about those who are inside the church. Sometimes we act like Keeping people in the church building is our goal. 
particularly when we think about young Christians, we our mindset is, well, if we just keep them in the church building long enough, we're going we're gonna to kind of pen them up and keep them in here. We're going to entertain them, make sure they don't leave, and that's enough. We think our goal is just keeping people inside a little box, the church box. But imagine if a hospital staff worked that way. You're sick, you go into a hospital, and someone has you change into a gown, they, they put you in a bed, they get you something to drink, ask if you want anything to eat, turn on a TV for you, hand you the remote, say, okay, well, have a good time here. And they never address the, the reason you're there. They never address that you are sick and you need to get well. They're just keeping you there, and they, they want to see how long they can keep you there. I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. Church attendance is never the point. What matters is that people come to believe God. Think back to those numbers from Barna. 40% of young adult Christians, 20 to 30, have have no direction for their life, no purpose. If we just want them to come to church and then sort of liven up our services or something, just be here, make us feel better. If we just want them to be in the church building, we're not giving them a purpose. They're still going to live directionless lives. Perhaps more tragically, those 20% exiles have a real passion to live out the gospel. They have a real passion to take the gospel to their life, to the people in their lives. They say things like this. I want to be a Christian without separating myself from the world around me. In other words, they have come to understand that the the bubble mindset, you know, we kind of develop this soft bubble and everyone stays in and everyone's going to be okay. That bubble mindset is wrong. They don't buy that anymore. Or they say things like, I want to find a way to follow Jesus that connects with the world I live in. In other words, they're not satisfied with a supposed Christianity that's relegated to a Sunday morning service. They want their faith to impact their life. They want their faith in God to really change how they live. And perhaps most startling of all, they say, I feel stuck between the comfortable faith of my parents and the life I believe God wants from me. I feel stuck between the comfortable faith of my parents and the life I believe God wants from me. Do you hear what these people are asking for? They want a reason to live. They want to be excited by God's purposes in the world. They want to understand that God is doing something, that we're not just gathering here to be here for a social function. We are gathering here because God is doing something incredible. He started it back in Genesis 1-1, and he's going to finish it in the future. Read the end of Revelation. You see the picture of what God is doing. That is what they want. They want to know that God is at work, and they want to know that they can be part of that. We sell them short if we just want to keep them in church and maybe feed them pizza and things like that. They are asking for life-changing truth. And we're so tempted tempted to just sort of play games with them and, and entertain them. My heart breaks for these kids. I mean, especially this 20%. God has given them a burden. 
church has discouraged them. And we as a church should be unleashing them on the world. Giving them godly direction and say, go, yes, you're right. We've been wrong. Go, do it. Our task is to build in them the, the godly character and the, the ministry competence to be able to allow them to do what God has called them to do. And this 40% who, who are without direction, without purpose, we have failed to instill in them a passion for God's glory and a passion for His kingdom. We as a church should be lighting a fire in their hearts and and fueling them to live their lives on a mission, not purposeless, but to give them the direction that, that God gave them, the direction that God has put in their hearts. That's because it's been so dormant, they've lost that sense. We need to rekindle that fire in them to direct them towards God's good purposes. Now, I don't want to give the wrong impression here. I, I'm not trying to berate you as the church. I, that's not my purpose at all. I, I love the church. I think the church is God's instrument for bringing his kingdom to the world. God uses the church for his good purposes. So I'm not here to make you feel bad about the church. Instead, I want you to see the opportunity that is here. Yes, the majority of Christian kids are leaving the church, but really they don't want to leave the church. They've either found it frustrating or, or they found it superfluous and unnecessary to their life, but they, they want a purpose they want to know what it means to actually live. And we have the opportunity to be part of that, to be excited by what God is teaching them and to learn from them and to go with them into the world with the message of the gospel. We are called to go and to make disciples, not to gather on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings is just a tool. It's only part of that where we can together come and, and learn what God has to say so that we can go and live it out. We as a church are right now in the process of, of searching for an associate pastor for leading our youth in, in family ministries. Our purpose in hiring this position is not to entertain our kids better or to feed them better snacks or, or even to find someone really cool so that they can think that the, the Christian faith is, is cool and they can sort of be happier about coming and things like that. And the goal of that, that position is not to develop a good, safe little bubble where nothing is ever going to hurt our kids and, and they're never going to see people outside the church. And that, that just leads to the same shallow faith where 60 to 70 percent end up leaving the church we are working to revitalize our ministry to children and to young adults to youth and to their parents because we want them to find a passion for following jesus we want them to know the shocking message of the gospel that there is radical acceptance here no matter who you are or what your background what you've done God loves you and he is giving you his grace you are accepted by God and radical acceptance matched with radical transformation you aren't left in that hole you are called to something new something genuine something real you are called to the worldwide mission of the gospel you are called to be part of God's kingdom work. Our goal is, to, is never to have people in church. That is never our goal. 
our goal is for people to put their faith in God. That is the only way for our mission as a church to be meaningful. It's meaningless to just have people gathered here. No, we are here for a reason. We are on the mission that Jesus has given us to go to make disciples. So if nothing else, Abraham must teach us this. God simply wants you to trust him more than anything else in all the world, no matter who you are. God wants you and me to put our faith in him. It's not about culture or religious trappings or or ritual. This is about trusting God. This is about coming to a place where we say to God, you are the only thing in my life. You are the driving force without which nothing makes sense, but with which everything makes sense. I will follow you. I am yours. You are my God. God wants us to put all of our faith in him. And when we do, we will find true life. Meaning, purpose, direction, wholeness. Let us trust God. Please pray with me. God, you love your people. You love your church. And your church is designed and called to be a powerful instrument for your kingdom. In your grace, give us the faith to follow that not any of the traditions that we wrap up in our church life, but to follow you hard so that people may see that it's, it's not about looking right and being right. It's, it's about following God, it's about following Jesus. Father, somehow, in your grace, make us instruments for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus, through whom we have all hope. Amen.